Well, good morning again. Good to see you. And I'm glad you're here. I really am glad you're here. I'm very glad you're here. If you weren't here, I don't know if I'd be here, but I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you uh, got up, walked across the campus this morning, and maybe you needed an umbrella, and uh, maybe you needed waiters, but you came, so thank you for doing so. I don't know if you're ready to do some heavy lifting, but we're going to look at a text today that is just not light fair, and uh, I, I wondered even about the very, very strong sense of leading that I had because I knew likely who would be here, that the individuals who would be here would be, as we proverbially say, members of the choir. Um, and so I recognize that today, but I just hope you'll take it as this is one of those kind of watershed moments, this is one of those hallmark truths that really does in every way need our attention and we need to be defined by these truths. So we're going to look today at uh, Romans. Whenever you look at Romans, you know that it's going to be um, weightier, heavier than other passages of Scripture. We're going to look at Romans chapter 6, and I'm going to read the entire chapter because we need to, um, to, to really pick up the entire gist of what uh, the Apostle Paul was inspired to write at this juncture or this point in the letter. So follow along, if you will. Again, I'm reading from the New American Standard, and if that's foreign to you, I apologize, but um, you have hopefully a Bible in front of you that is familiar to you that will help you as we read. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we should no longer be slaves to sin." For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? 
Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present your, yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a text. What a text. There are two major themes in this chapter, and the language is tough stuff. Let me just be honest with you when we talk about heavy lifting. The language that Paul uses, the examples he uses, um, the images that he is providing for us are stark, and especially where we are today in our own culture, they are difficult things to grasp, and they're hard to deal with. They're off-puttish in many respects. But this is the inspired word of God, and it's foundational, really, to our understanding of sanctification or living the sanctified life and our understanding, biblically, of holiness. So we can't skirt the issue here just because it's tough stuff. This isn't easy language. In fact, it's hard language, and it forces us to think, and it forces us to dig deeply. And really, these become pretty powerful inventory, personal inventory words and themes that the Apostle Paul was inspired to use. Let's look at both of them quickly and just give a brief over, overview. The first one is the imagery of slavery. Now, we all know where we've been in our own culture over the last year. There's been a lot dredged up about our history, some accurate, a lot inaccurate, but there is without a doubt, in our history, embedded and entrenched in our history, there is some ugly stuff known as slavery. So even though I don't agree with the way that it's been leveraged, and I don't agree with the fact that there's the idea that we can't ever escape it, God forbid! That's not biblical. That is not biblical. God can change the heart. And I, I am not who I am because I was born the color I am. Neither is anyone else who they are because of the color they were born. May God help us to get past that kind of hopeless branding and that kind of hopeless treatment of one another. If anything, we're taking steps backward faster than we can think. God help us with that. But slavery is a hard subject to deal with. It just is. It's off-puttish. It's off-puttish. 
It's ugly. But yet I want us to understand the first century New Testament understanding of slavery. Paul is writing to the church in Rome. Those who were there, many of them, and many of them in the church, would have been in that strata of life. They would have been slaves. And the idea of slavery ran a varied spectrum. There were those that had wonderful masters. There were those who had willingly and voluntarily given themselves to be slaves of good masters. There were those who were actually earning wages. There were those who were putting aside property. There were those also who were treated poorly. There were those who were destitute and and harangued and mistreated by their masters. But the idea of masters, slave or servant, the idea of one being under the authority of the other, we just sang about that. Master of everything. Now, I didn't see anybody shriek or hear anybody shriek and run out of the tabernacle because they plugged their ears and said, not me, not me. We have come to endearingly embrace slavery. Did you hear that? Because Jesus is our master. Do we get that? We don't cringe, or we shouldn't, cringe at the notion of servitude or being a servant because we're love slaves. We've had the all taken to our ear to punch as a reminder, we're, we're love slaves of Jesus. So Paul uses this imagery because he knew that the people in Rome, the believers in Rome, would get it. He knew they would get it. He also knew that they would get another image, and it's an even more difficult one. And it's the imagery, it's death language that deals with spiritual realities in you and in me. Now, we shouldn't run from this. We shouldn't find it as something that is just too confrontational. We should not turn a deaf ear or a blind eye to this. We shouldn't skirt over Romans. We shouldn't skirt over the writings of the Apostle Paul because he frequently refers to spiritual realities in death language terms. We're aware of that, aren't we? We don't hear, though, much about that these days because it's probably going to be to someone that we want to keep in our pews offensive, right? So we dare not mention these things. We just want to be positive, positive all the time. And we don't ever want to rub anybody, anybody the wrong way because we just cannot stand the statistical fallout from it. But the reality is these are images to get a hold of us as far as our spiritual need and what God has called upon us to cooperate with and agree with. So there are two key factors about the whole slave image and slavery image. By the way, the word slave is used a minimum of eight times in just this chapter. Eight times. So it's definitely a point he's trying to make. Like it or not, he's making a point. He's driving home a point. But there are two factors, and I'm, I'm sure that there are many others, and greater minds could come up with more, but I came up with two. And you're glad that I only came up with two. But I came up with two, so let's just look at those quickly. 
when we look at the, the motif of slavery. The motif of slavery, especially as it would have been known and would have been accustomed to in the first century, would have encompassed at least two facts. One, the issue of ownership. The issue of ownership. In fact, as we do any kind of study in that era, historically, and also look at biblical languages, we understand that individuals were considered less than persona, less than persona, in many respects not looked at as a whole person if they were slaves. But what was consistent about that reality was not just that they were diminished in some way, but there in the good interactions and the good relationships between a fair and just and kind master versus one that the world or the culture around them would have considered them not completely full persons, their personhood was made up by their master. Their personhood or identity was fulfilled by whose they were. Do you get that? It's even in the language that the Apostle Paul uses when he says, I am crucified with Christ, using that other image. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. He uses that personal pronoun, ego. Ego is crucified with Christ. But the one who lives is marked by, is filled by, is framed by, is identified by the one who lives in him, Jesus Christ. Christ. So, do we, are, are we picking up on this? Are we getting this? Ownership. Ownership. It is important for us to get off of the idea that we are large and in charge. You know that? Because we are not. That is absolute folly and futility. Just go around telling everybody you're large and in charge. Especially if somebody who's larger and more in charger than you are says, no, you're not large and in charge. Right? That won't bode well for you uh, if somebody laces up the gloves with you. A world also cannot function if everyone, if everyone is a law unto themselves. And thinks they're in charge. We're kind of there, aren't we? We're kind of there. Ownership. So the idea that I am not my own, I am indeed at the disposal of another. There is an authority over me. And I don't live my life on a whim, and I don't live my life as I choose, but I live my life according to the dictates the desires and the plans of the one who owns me. A price has been paid for me, or I owe a debt, and therefore I am owned. Now, the difference for us is slavery in that day, again, could have been involuntary or voluntary. In our case, spiritually, it's voluntary. We don't go God's way kicking and screaming. We don't put up a fight against him. We don't say, well, I've got to serve Jesus, otherwise he'll hit me on the back of the head. No, we serve Jesus voluntarily, willingly. We've given over our supposed rights to ourselves. Did you get that? Supposed rights. Because we don't have any rights to ourselves. We think we do, but we don't. 
Sometimes it's interesting when we give God our all, the fact is it was his in the first place. It's not like he's getting a bargain deal. The fact is he had made us and he had paid a price for us that you and I cannot measure. My, how we need to see that. Ownership. Second thing is control. Control. If Jesus is the owner, or let's just put it this way in a broader sense, because this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Whatever or whomever owns you, controls you. Okay? So ownership is an issue followed by control. Whomever or whatever owns you, controls you, we can count on that every day of the week. Whatever or whomever owns you, controls you. Now, I'm a pastor, have been for a long time, and so you get stuff from me from the pastoral context. Most of the time, I really enjoy being a pastor. Most of the time. But one thing I have learned is no one listens to a word I say. Okay? So I've just kind of come to the conclusion, if you could accept that, if you can kind of deal with that, then life goes better for you as a pastor if you just kind of have the overall assumption, no one listens to a word I say. Now you might think, well, that's kind of pessimistic. No, it's very realistic. I'm a realist. I'm not a pessimist. I'm not an optimist. I'm a realist. I've pastored people too long. And here's one of the ways that no one ever listens to a word I say, because I say it a lot. I try to do this leading up to those moments where it is crunch time, especially in families, especially parents to children. I will constantly say, to the point where I'm sure that my people get tired of me saying it, do not change your theology because of a wayward child. Did you catch that? Do not kick God to the curb because of a wayward child. Don't jettison the truth because you now have to somehow validate your child's behavior. Do you hear me? Thanks. I'm, but I'm not convinced. Um, because I say this all the time. I say this all the time. I say it all the time. And then some wayward child pops up and they decide that God's word doesn't apply to them and God's a different God than what the scriptures reveal. Did you hear me? God's all of a sudden a different God and they've designed that God. It's a designer God. Have you ever noticed that? Um, God has now become a designer God. But the thing is, there are so many billion designers. He certainly doesn't resemble anything that he's revealed or disclosed about himself in Scripture. Have you noticed that? Well, God's okay with this. I start to twitch. And pretty soon, I watch mom and dad. I watch mom and dad. And it isn't long, quietly, and they would never come out and overtly state this because they know how bad it sounds. But in practice... They tell God to kind of take a hike. And they redesign truth. And they put their imprimatur, their seal of approval, on the wayward direction of a child. Because after all, 
I can't lose their relationship. Let me just remind you of something. No relationship is real if it's not built and based on the truth. Do we hear that? Now, you can still love them, and you should still love them. You can still communicate with, it, with them, and you should. But it must always be on God's terms. Because after all, if you really hope that they'll turn, if you really hope that they'll eventually mind God, you might be, in your steadfastness, you might be that necessary conviction. Mom and Dad love me, but they love God most. They love God supremely. They love God without reserve, without question. And even if I go off the rails, they're not going to go off of the rails with God. That's a wonderful means over long term of convicting individuals to return to the God who loves them and wants to redeem them. But if you cave, if you give in, and if you endorse their waywardness, their wickedness, their move away from God, you become complicit with their own departure from the faith. Do you hear me? Okay, so when we talk about slave and, the, and use those terms, we're talking about ownership and we're talking about control. So I would just remind us of this. There are parents and grandparents here and let me just remind us of this. Do not turn on God for anything or anyone. Do not turn on God for anything or anyone. He alone is to be our master. Now, if we don't serve him, Paul makes it very clear, there really isn't a gray place. There really isn't in a place, there isn't a place in between that we can land. It's really a matter of two masters. Isn't that consistent with what Jesus said? There really are just two masters, and they are polar opposites. So you're either a slave to God, which yields righteousness and yields ultimately sanctification, or you're a slave to sin. Now, we might think ultimately that we're a slave to ourselves, but that really is a smokescreen. We think we are slaves to ourselves, and that really is a root problem. But the fact is, when we think we're a slave to ourselves or we're doing what we want to do, we're really not. We're doing what sin is compulsory to do. We're doing what sin encourages us to do. What is sin? Lawlessness. And the Apostle Paul says that in this text. Not only is it lawless, it leads to more lawlessness. All right, so that, have we, have we covered that motif enough? Shake your head yes if we have, and we'll move on. Yeah, you just want me to move on. So anyway, we'll move on. All right, so the second thing is death language, cross Death language, cross language. We do okay when we think that Jesus is the only one that has to face a cross and that he did. We're, we're glad about that. And if we can just completely and totally live vicariously through him, we're pretty happy. But the fact is, spiritually, not physically, but spiritually, there is indeed a cross for each one of us. 
And he makes that very, very clear. We are to encounter our own crucifixion. We talked about that the other night. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Can't get any clearer than that. So what is it then that needs a good killing? You know, my brother pastors out in Gillette, Wyoming, in northeast Wyoming. That's a different breed of people. You go out there, and other than cell phones, you'd think you had just stepped back into the 1800 West, the cowboy West. I really enjoy it out there. I love it out there. When I go out there, you, you wouldn't believe it looking at me, but I go to rodeos, and uh, I think it's amazing. And I asked my brother one time, I said, why are these people all missing digits? Well, it's because roping, those are hard and just biting ropes, and if you get things caught in a knot, you just lose a digit. So I guess you don't know if you're a very good roper, just depending on how many digits you've lost. Fascinating place. They are just so refreshingly honest. I don't know how else to put it. But they just kind of state the case. And I remember my brother early on in his pastor out there was talking to a fellow who was dealing with, with uh, an owner of a coal mine that never showed up but gave them all a lot of grief and began to poison a lot of their wells and different things that were going on in the Gillette area. And the guy who you know, love, loves God, was a part of Dad's church, he said, you know, sometimes somebody just needs a good killing. <laughs> now, I'll be honest with you, that scared me a little bit. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, man. Um, the truth is, we all, we all need a good killing. And we kind of quit laughing. But we all need a good killing. And it's one, strangely enough, that we need to agree to. It's voluntary. God will not grab us by the back of the neck and throw us on our own cross. We will have to agree it should happen. When we begin to realize the obstinate, self-centered nature that lies often under the surface, but pushes back hard when it's pressed. When we begin to realize a poisonous spirit in us that frankly is what even Peter didn't know he had. When he told Jesus, I'll be the one, these others are finks, but I'll be the one who will go with you to the death. Jesus said, you don't know what's in your heart, Peter. You will betray me. When crunch time comes, you will betray me. God knows what's in our hearts. He loves us enough not to leave us there. Aren't you thankful for that? He loves us enough to say, here's the deal, friends. Sin has done a real deal on us. and Sin has really infected us. And this is the only cure. Aren't you glad that Jesus not only forgives sins because of the shed blood he's offered, but that he also provides the cure for our very, very, very sin-sick soul. Aren't you thankful for that? He is curative in what he does. Praise his name. So to be blessed by the cure, you have to go through the difficulty of the diagnosis, to use kind of medical analogy, right? 
You can't say, well, I just want the cure, but just don't give me the bad news. No, you have to crave and want the cure because the diagnosis is diabolical. And it really is diabolical. Coming from that term diabolos, it is diabolical. And we, when we see that, when we understand that, we have to agree, I need to die to sin. Now, when we talk about dying to sin and ultimately dying to self, what in the world do we mean by that? First of all, we don't even say that very much anymore. But what do we mean by that? Well, what we mean ultimately is this, and I'll just I'll try to pick up the pace and hurry along here. What do we mean by that? We mean that something or someone no longer has control over us or impact on us, it no longer influences us. We don't spend any time there anymore. There isn't an intimate connection anymore. We are separated from it or separated from them. We no longer have this bond with it or with them because indeed we have been separated and saved from sin. Now I want to make a point that I don't think it's just a matter of semantics. I think it's important for us to note the difference. There isn't anywhere presented in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are to be saved as we continue in our sins. We are not saved in our sins or in our sinning. Thanks be unto God, that isn't his miserable answer to our terrible problem. We are saved from our sin and our sins. God does a perfect, masterful job. And all you and I have to agree to is, I need this. And even though it's pretty hard to hear, and even though it's difficult to deal with, even though it's stinging language and the diagnosis takes my breath away, even though I am aware of what I need to do and it's not an easy thing for me to do, it's unnatural. So let me just say, yeah, it is. It is unnatural to vote with Jesus that we need to be crucified. It's as unnatural as it gets. But our problem is, what's natural? The natural man is corrupted, perverted, and the natural man is at a standoff against God. Do we understand that? If we stay natural, we're doomed. So God gives us free will so that when the Holy Spirit works on us and pulls on us and we begin to see what we need to see and prevenient grace begins to open our eyes and awaken us, we then, by the help and the aid of the Holy Spirit, can exercise the will that He keeps intact, the freedom He keeps intact, and we can say, as bizarre as it might seem, I vote with Jesus that I need this crucifixion. Bring it on. Do we understand that? That's the kind of vote and that's the kind of power He gives us. He grants us that. Isn't that good? He enables that freedom to choose the hard thing knowing it will produce the glory thing. It will produce the good outcome. You know, for those who fight against the whole idea of death to self, are we so enamored with ourselves that we think it's a good thing to be full of ourselves? 
I mean, really, I'm pretty full of myself. Feeling pretty good. Feeling pretty good about myself. My goodness. The option to stay full of ourselves versus being full of the Spirit of Christ. Who would choose the former? But I'll be honest with you, a lot of people in the church do just that. First of all, sadly, they don't hear much preaching that helps them. Isn't that sad where we are in the church today? We just hear nice kind of surface stuff. And, and when, we, when we leave the church, nobody's feathers are ruffled and everybody's in good humor and we just drive peacefully and lovingly with the Christian radio on down to Wendy's or wherever we go and we just live a wonderful, charmed life because Jesus has given us our best life now. My, oh my, oh my. And the reason why our hearts never, ever really rise up against is because there's nothing ever threatened. The citadel of a carnal, depraved heart is really never threatened. Do you get that? Jesus never comes close enough, and he's never presented clearly enough to where God convicts a person of self-centered egoism. And so you know what? The ego is left intact. Egoism is allowed to live and the church, sadly, too much condones just that. You know, I'll be honest with you. Some people have told me, you know, people leave, leave my churches. That doesn't surprise you. Um, but people leave my church, and they'll tell me sometimes. One person told me, I just come to be affirmed, and you don't affirm me. Well, I'll be honest with you. When people are going to hell, I don't have time to affirm them in their journey. Do we understand that? They're heading to the abyss. And they're heading into a situation that changes not. And God has descriptively given us reason to be averse to that. So my responsibility is not to coddle people and give them soft cushion on their way to hell. My responsibility is to tell them, you need to die to yourself because if you're full of yourself, you're not full of Christ, and you'll die that way and you'll be doomed. You know, if we ever want an awakening in our nation, and I do, I pray that I live to see a great awakening again in our land. Do you? I do. But the only way that's ever going to come, the world will not preach to itself. I know you might think, well, I know that. Well, I'm just reminding us that the sinful, godless world will never, ever take itself to task for being sinful and godless. It's self-indicting. The world will not do that. The only hope is once again for the hard, scrabble, spare-no-thing kind of gospel to be preached again in our churches so that the church gets revived, so that the world takes notice, and our neighborhoods are changed, and workplaces are changed, and once again there's an awakening to the fact there's a God to deal with. But if the churches are mealy-mouthed and dead, then the world will not have anything to spark its interest or to convict it of sin. God help us. This is the church's fault. I'll be honest with you. 
Where we are as a culture is the church's fault. It's pastor's fault. It's trying to curry favor with congregations and pad their pensions. It's individuals who do not have the courage to preach, thus saith the Lord. So may God help us. May God help us. May God help us. The language that Paul gives is tough. It's tough. Be a slave of Jesus. If not, you're a slave to sin. Then, die to sin, you'll be a good servant, and die to yourself. You won't push back against the authority of the Lord. In fact, you'll understand and you'll enjoy the sanctifying presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. So, in closing, I would just ask, who owns you? Who owns you? Who controls you? Scripture says Christ or sin. Who owns you? Who controls you? And then I would say, did you and have you opted for a once-for-all decisive moment of a spiritual crucifixion of your old self? You know, aren't you thankful that there is such a thing as an old self? That's encouraging, isn't it? It's actually hopeful that there can be an old self knowing that there is by Jesus' design, God's design, a new self. Man, that's hopeful, isn't it? That is encouraging. That our old man, our old self can be done away with. Man. You know, my mom used to tell me, Jonathan, you must think the world revolves around you. I was the youngest of five, and I just thought, well, what's your point? Um, uh, I I think it should, and I think it does. Mom was trying to subtly, I didn't do well with subtlety, she was trying to subtly tell me this ought not be. The world doesn't revolve around us. Our world should orbit around Jesus. He should be our center and not us. So I come to this passage in Hebrews. I'm sure glad Gary Cockrell isn't in here. I'd be nervous to even read Hebrews with him in here. But I will read some of the closing words, powerful, powerful words from Hebrews chapter 13, 12 through 14. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people, make them holy, sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So, now get this, get this. Here's our our response. We've been talking about responses. Here's our response. So, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here, We do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. What a text. If Jesus suffered outside the gate that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, what's the response? Go out to him. That means embrace everything that he has done. And take it necessarily as your own. 
Who owns you? Who controls you? And have you, have you opted for, voted for, agreed to, cooperated with your own cross moment? John Wesley made the statement that there is not only, I paraphrase, there is not only a great and kind of decisive big cross moment, but every day will be full of little cross moments where we can affirm and reaffirm that big cross moment. But we need the big cross moment. That settles matters, that then sets the stage, sets our trajectory to walk with God, and then we stay dead. We vote to stay dead. All right, I've gone too long. Um, I hope these words are helpful to us. You know, above, above my head is holiness unto the Lord. When I sit out there and when I wait to get up here or when I'm a part of the worship service and Billy is preaching or there's a Bible study going on, do we still find that as our benchmark? Do we still look to that as our banner? Holiness unto the Lord. Hardly anybody talks about holiness anymore. If it is, it's self-help stuff. We need the holiness that comes from the Lord. Let's stand, please. Father in heaven, good folks have been here this morning. And we've looked at your word together. And Lord, I'm, I'm not expecting anything but that these folks have walked in the light and continue to walk in the light. But I don't know what that light might require of us. So Lord, I would just pray that as we affirm and we say amen to and we agree to this truth, I pray that we would also then live and reflect and mirror this truth in our own lives that as we get light we will walk in it there may be a little cross today that somebody needs to affirm and agree to they may not have to do it at an altar of prayer but I just pray if there is a moment where the enemy is creeping in and pulling our allegiance away and he's shrewd at that May there be another affirmation of the cross. Help us, Lord, to be alive unto Christ because we're dead unto sin. Alive unto Christ, dead to sin and dead to ourselves. Help us, we pray, to apply this truth with the help of your Spirit in Jesus' name.